for a believer. What God has put in your heart, every believer, we talk about that, right? If you have received Christ as your Savior, you've become a partaker of the life of Christ. That just doesn't mean that you go to heaven when you die. That means you have his life now. The Bible says in 1 John 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now. And when you partook of Jesus Christ, his life. Now, Jesus in John 6 used the illustration because the day before, he fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and fishes, and they all showed up again looking for him around the Lake of Galilee to find him because, hey, it was good food. I mean, the Lord made it. It had to be really good. And just having a meal in those days was something, and so they looked for him. And Jesus confronted them, and he said, you know, the sad thing is you didn't just you didn't even come because of the miracle. You came because you wanted something for your belly. They said, well, in the Old Testament, Moses gave our fathers in the wilderness the bread of heaven. He said, no, he gave them what is it. I say, what? See, manna just means what is it. And so they went out in the morning, and they, God said there's going to be there. And they said, what is it? What is that? What is it? It was manna. And so that word for what is it is manna. And they took the manna and the instructions how they could make it into cakes six days a week, and they were never to save it except for on the sixth day, or excuse me, on the, on the, yeah, on the sixth day, on Friday. And then on Saturday when they worshiped God, they weren't to pick any, there wouldn't be any there. So if they saved it from the other days, it would turn to worms, right? But on, that, on, on Friday night when they picked it up, it wouldn't turn to worms, and they could have it for the Sabbath for their, for their meal. And even that, miraculous bread from heaven was still physical bread and he pointed out Jesus pointed out they ate it and they died but if you partake of my flesh and my blood you'll live forever see you have the life of your biological mother and father in you you have their DNA so if there's things that you happen to like or not like it's not a big surprise when people call on the phone uh, when I was growing up and I answered the phone after my voice changed, I'd say, Pastor, and sometimes I'd say, yes. And my boys did the same thing to me. And then people, the next person got on the phone and said, he sounds just like you. Well, we're related. When you partake of the life of Christ, you get his life, his want to. And so that's in there, the desire to please God. And Paul points that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that if you're here and you're absent from heaven, but you're here present in your body, or you die and you go to be with the Lord, you still have this one purpose in life, to be pleasing unto him. You know what pleases God? When we love our brothers. When we love one another. I don't know if you've read those books or seen on those web pages on the internet where they'll talk about things written on gravestones. And I know in jolly old England, there's some strange ones. But when you think about what you want to be remembered for as a believer, it ought to be priority in your life to remember that you were a spiritual encouragement, that you were encouragement to faithfulness. Primarily, in your spouse's life and in your children's life, that you were not a stumbling block, you were an encouragement to faithfulness. And to please the Lord, that ought to be a priority in your life, that you are not somebody just going through life doing your own thing and you give a nod to God once in a while, but your life is lived 
so that your life is an encouragement to those around you. That you're a stepping stone. That your life makes it easy to follow Christ. That your kids don't have to crawl over a half-baked example of Christianity to get to Jesus. But they want to love God because mom and dad love the Lord. A life of encouragement. Verse 12 says, therefore. And so when we see therefore, we look and remember what it's there for. So just a review of last week. Every child of God gets discipline. Every child of God gets discipline. If you don't have discipline in your life, you don't belong to God. Because the Bible says right there that he disciplines every son he receives. And then he says that there are two reactions to discipline that are wrong. The two wrong reactions are you regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. You say, I don't, that doesn't bother me. I'm going to do what I want, right? The other wrong reaction is when you're just from the Lord and you just faint and you quit. In between those two, there's the right reaction to God's discipline where you don't ask why. You say, okay, Lord, you have my attention. You have my attention. What do you want to teach me today? This morning I was listening to Dr. Stanley on the television. One thing I remember from his message, he said, don't waste the pain. Don't waste the pain of the trial and forget what God was trying to teach you. In the midst of the hardest part, your right reaction is to look up and say, okay, Lord, what would you have me to do? And sometimes the trials are so hard that Paul said sometimes all you can do in Ephesians 6 is stand. But you say, Lord, what? What's the next step? What would you have me to do? Your eyes are focused on the Lord. But because it's hard, and it says there, we get down to verse 11, and it says, it says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Sometimes discipline's hard. Therefore, Lift up the hands that are getting weak and the knees that are getting feeble. In my deep trials, the thing that I've found that is the most encouraging to me is somebody that just comes alongside. Not a know-it-all that has all the answers, but somebody's there walking with you, running the race beside you. Fellowship is such an important part of us getting through this life successfully. N none of us are an island. You hear people say once in a while, you hear, well, I'm a believer, but I don't need the church. Are you crazy? Yeah, I can just do this on my own. Wow. Then you may not, you must not have many trials, or you're starting to get kind of hardened because you know what? I need the church. I need to be in fellowship almost every day with other believers because it's a battle out there. And there's something about fellowship that destroys temptation to sin. There is. I mean, when, when, when you're beginning to be tempted, if you can just call your friend and say, hey, how's it going today? All of a sudden, you're in fellowship, and all, that, that temptation is not real anymore. Disciplining ourselves, asking God for the discipline, the strength to just make that call once in a while. 
But you know, we don't have to wait. When we know somebody's struggling, we shouldn't be waiting around for them to call us. Because see, we have a connection. We have the Holy Spirit. And while we can't read the minds of our brothers and sisters, God can. And how many times does he just put it on your heart, call so-and-so? And when he first puts that person on your heart, what you do? Pray. You don't know why. Maybe. You just pray. And so you're praying, and then God gives you the thought, hmm, maybe I should give them a call. Hey, listen, you were just, God put you on my heart today. I thought I'd give you a call. And often that brother or sister will say, I can't believe it. I needed you to call me today. We need one another. That's why you're going to hear us say it over and over again. Are you in a small group? You need to get in a small group because, yes, we have fellowship. And I tell you after every service almost, encourage one another. Because what happens in your fellowship is more powerful than what I'm doing here just with, by myself. Because we can apply the word in one another's lives. We can encourage one another. But it can't happen just here. There's a lot of people here. It's in the small group that we have the encouragement. We really can hear the burdens from our friends, what they're struggling with, and pray for them. It's in the small group that we have the confrontation. We know someone well enough to say, hey, man, What's going on? It just doesn't seem like things are going well. It seems like you're lacking joy. It's in small group that we get to know one another. We can bear one another's burdens. We need one another. He says there, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Now, I was a strength coach for many years, starting back in, when I was finishing college. And actually, when I was in the Army, I was a strength coach. And, and then here at Laramie High School for about 10, 12 years. And I, I love being a strength coach. But you know what? I really couldn't strengthen guys. I could give them a workout. I could teach them proper form so they didn't hurt themselves when they started lifting heavy weights. And I could be there as a coach when they made those heavy lifts. You know, we'd have, we'd have maxes once a month. Say, man, get ready, we're gonna have max. And those guys, because we're walking in fellowship as a coach and as a team, we'd be excited about that. Oh, we're going to have max day. We didn't do that every week because then you wouldn't grow and you wouldn't get as strong. But then we were there. And we do that one before. And we say, all right, come on. This is for the big one. This is the first time you've ever done it. You can do this. You can do it. And there was something about that camaraderie that gave energy to that person. Here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and your friend, even in a hard trial, if they know Jesus Christ is in there, the grace is in there, the Holy Spirit is in there to give them the strength to get through the trial. You can't make them stronger, but your encouragement means so much. So much. And one of the hard trials I've talked about before, when, when God took Jesse home, our youngest son, to be with him, that's a hard trial. And as a young pastor, I didn't know a lot about dealing with people at that point. At that point, if you had asked me before I went that, through that trial, I thought, well, you know, you try to give people some good verses, you know, and, you know, you can show up when people are going through a trial, and if you just got answers, they don't really mean anything. It, it's kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's just going to bounce off, and all they hear is wah, 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 wah. It doesn't help. But, you know, when the word got out to the church that Jesse had passed away, 
people just came over. And one of the most comforting things to me, and, and I remember thinking that when he was sitting there, was my friend Walt Goffkin came over, and he sat down on the couch, and he put his arm around me. Big old Walt just put his arm around me. He didn't say anything. He said, I love you, Paul. He didn't say anything. He just sat there. And I, and I remember taking that in as a dad that was hurting and just thinking, wow, that's, that's comforting. I got to remember this. It's not about the answers. It's about walking through. But if we stood off when somebody's going through a trial and say, yeah, yeah, I could have told them that was going to happen. If they just do what's right, you know, they, you know, they wouldn't be there right now if they just listened to me. Or if they wouldn't be so stupid, right? We get those judgments and we don't necessarily say them, but we can stand off as our brother's going through trial. Maybe it's discipline and that's no help. We just kind of pull away and what God wants us to do is do what the Holy Spirit does. He wants us to come close and run alongside for a while and say, listen, I know you can make it through. I'm tired too. Or I've been in this exact trial. The trials that you've been through before, you think, well, I don't know if that's such a big deal. I'll tell you, people are willing to listen to people that have been through a hard trial. Then it's not just some smart stuff they're giving you. And I remember myself, and, and I'll tell you, when you're going through a trial, be listening. Please listen to the Lord during those times. He's going to speak to your heart like no other time. And let me give you this direction. Make sure when you're going through a trial that you memorize the verses he lays on your heart because you're going to use those again. And I've spoken to so many people, Psalm 3. It was on a summer day, June 3rd. I'm, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but I was going through a hard trial. And so, like I do, I open my Bible to Psalm 3 because it's the third of the month. And I read, they say there's no help for him from God. God's not going to help him. But you, O oh Lord, you're a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. And all I could say at that time is, Lord, would you lift my head? And you know what? He didn't change the circumstances at all. But the way the Lord leads us from his word, he gives us a thought. He leads us by spiritual words and spiritual thoughts. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he gave me a couple of thoughts. The first thought he gave me was, well, nobody's told you you couldn't preach the gospel, have they? No. And then he gave me another thought. Are people still coming to Christ? And I lifted my head a little bit and I thought, yes. And he didn't say this, but I had the thought, so what are you whining about, right? And I tell you, I had a physical chill up my spine. You know why? Because God just lifted my head. There were no visions, the circumstances didn't change, but the Holy Spirit took the word of God, he gave me some thoughts, and he lifted my head. Now, when I come to somebody that's in a trial, and I come alongside them, and I can say, listen, I was in a really hard trial one time, and I felt like I was all by myself, and God gave me this psalm. I was just reading this psalm this day, so we're going to pray that God lifts your head, and then you be listening to the Holy Spirit what he's going to tell you to do, and then you just obey. People are more apt to listen because it's not just some information. When I was in a trial, this is the way through the trial that I found in the Word of God. 
This is the way through. When you've been in a trial, you say, why am I going through this hard trial? I don't have the answer to that. But if you will listen to the Lord in that hard trial, there'll be somebody you can come along later in life and they're going to say, well, you, you probably never experienced anything like this before. But you say, oh, no, no. I was in a trial just like this. And God in his sovereignty allowed me to have that trial so I could be here today and just show you what God showed me from his word, how I was able to get through this trial. Now, it's up to them whether they want to be obedient to the word. But it means so much. I had a youth pastor that, Lynn Howe, and he didn't think my work was done yet. He needs some tune-up, so he's back again. He's my youth pastor. And uh, you know what Lynn used to do to us? He could, he could tell because he knew me from the time I was eight years old. And now I'm a teenager, and, and he's, he's my youth pastor. And instead of trying to chew me out or straighten me out, he said, Paul, put his arm around me. Come here in my office. We're going to go in here and pray. And I thought, oh, no, I don't want to pray. I can't hold on to my bad attitude and pray. I can hold on to my bad attitude. Somebody's preaching at me. I can just pretend you're Charlie Brown's teacher, and I can get through it. But, but pray. Because in my heart, I knew you don't mess with God in prayer. Now, somehow, maybe all teenagers are like this. It's kind of like if you're not praying, God doesn't see you. He sees you all the time. But all of a sudden, you're going to get serious. You're going to come to him in prayer. It was so powerful to me. Three things, three ways we come alongside people to strengthen them. In fellowship. Because if you're willing to be there with them and they know that you love them. They're a little bit more apt to, to share their burden with you. And then you pray with them. Because we don't know all the answers. But God does. And, and we just don't say, well, let's pray sometime. I'll be praying for you, brother. Be thou warmed and filled, right? Say, hey, let's just pray right now. Let's just pray what God would give you wisdom and strength just to get through this day maybe. And prayer. That's how we strengthen one another. By coming alongside in fellowship. By prayer, pointing them back to Jesus. And by his word. You see, we've already been through that passage right here. It says in Hebrews Chapter 2, looking unto Jesus. When things get tough and your race is hard, looking unto Jesus. And then the next verse says, consider him. Think about Jesus. Think about his trials, how he came through those trials, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint. So you come alongside your brother or sister in Christ, and you're running the race with them, and you're helping bear their burdens. You say, hey, let's, look, let's just think about Jesus for a minute. Let's spend some time together in prayer. Hey, here's some scripture that I found that was just strength for me exactly when I needed it. It's that come alongside that helps. We need one another. We're called to be an encouragement by speaking the truth in love. That's how we grow up in all aspects unto him, Ephesians chapter 4. Not coming to give answers, ah, you should have done this. Hope that didn't leave a mark. What an attitude. But we can do that, can't we? But when you go spend time with your brother and sister, it gives you a lot more empathy and sympathy for them to be able to love them and to remember to pray for them. Fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. That comes from prayer. 
You come at a problem because you see it, and we're a little myopic when it comes to other people's problems. We think we got the answer, but we don't understand the whole burden. So let's go to the Lord and consider, how can I be an encouragement to my brother and sister? Not forsaking our own assembling together as the matter of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, we need to be in fellowship with one another. You say, well, I really need to go to church this morning. I don't need to go to a small group. Maybe you don't need to, but maybe your brother or sister needs you to be there so you can bear their burdens that day. We need one another. We need to be an encouragement. The writer of Hebrews was just kind of quoting from Isaiah 35. Children of Israel in a hard spot. And God told Isaiah to tell, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. To be able to walk with people and lift their heads, join in the race next to them for a while, strengthen their arms. Then it says, Make straight paths for your feet. We can be encouragement by our own example. How many believers, I love reading biographies of old pastors that have gone to be with the Lord, of of missionaries that have gone to be with the Lord, of faithful men and women of God. Because you, you see in the biography that they have feet of clay too. And as they learn to trust the Lord, that lifts your heart. I could do that too. There are a lot of people that I don't know personally, but I've read their books, and it, it's been encouragement to me. As you see how God has worked in their life, their example, the example of your godly life, make straight paths for your feet. It, it's talking about the path that a wheel leaves in the, in the dirt. And, and when a, the weight of a, a wagon goes over, it, it kind of flattens out. And it's talking about a righteous life. 1 John 2, 10 says, The one who loves his brother abides in the life, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. Righteous living. Titus 2, 7 says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Ephesians 6 says, Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because your encouragement in the life of your children, in the life of those guys that are watching you, will give them, say, you know what, I I just, they may not know what to do, but I'm just going to do what my buddy does. You know, I've seen guys come to Christ because of the influence of another man in their life. And what does that new child in Christ do? He just follows them around. And, and I know of examples, kind of like Moses. Whenever Moses stopped, Joshua was bop, bop, bumping into him, wasn't he? He said, I'm just going to follow Moses wherever he goes. And when you make straight paths for your feet, you, you don't take yourself seriously because you're struggling in your own race. But it's an encouragement to other people. And you tell them, well, you know, I got this out of the Scripture today. And then I'm standing there, I go, I didn't get in the Scripture today. I need to get in the scripture today, right? They, they didn't accuse you of anything, but their righteous life is a strength to you. You know, that's why. That's why I'm stumbling today. I need to get in the word. You see somebody go through a trial, and 
they make some decisions when people are against them and they give such grace and mercy in return. And you go, man, I wish I could be more like that. The encouragement of a righteous life. The last part of 13 says, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, lame could be applying to weak Christians. And when they stumble over our life, it puts them out of joint. And it cripples them. We don't want it to be a stumbling block, but it also has to do with people that are in the church. And they're kind of pretending to go along. They're there They really haven't made that decision to follow Christ, but they're looking at the lives of believers. And in their way in coming to Christ, we can be a stomach block to them if we're not living righteous lives. How many people have we heard that from? Well, I grew up in church, but if that's the way the church acts, now I don't know what they grew up with, but I know it's true that they were in church as a little kid, and they saw bitterness and politics and things like that and leadership. And they go, whoa, that's, they were kind of attracted by the love of Christ. But I don't see that. And so they just, they just put it down. Well, all churches are like that. I guess all Christians are like that. And it caused them to stumble. And what a great opportunity when somebody tells us that. Well, I grew up in church. I just really wasn't encouraged. I, and, and I said, come to my church. You come and meet this flock. This is a healing flock. You could have just come and experience at one time because I know it's not about me. It's about the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of this church that will be an encouragement to them. But that's because individually we're taking responsibility to have a righteous life so we don't become a stumbling block for those that are looking for God. Maybe they've been around for a long time, but they're just kind of hanging in there. But they really haven't made that decision to turn their life over to Christ We need to make sure we have a responsibility of our own relationship with Christ. The Bible says in in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because that's God that's in you, both to will and to do of his good works. The last song we sang, work it out from the inside out. Our relationship with Christ, live before others that we might make a smooth path for them to come to Christ, a righteous life. Thirdly, verse 14, we want to be an encouragement with the supernatural love that God has given in our heart. It says there, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. At first glance, it kind of seems like, wow, you better be at peace with people and be holy or you won't go to heaven. And if you are good enough, you can get into heaven. But notice, it doesn't say without which you will not see the Lord. It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And so here's another opportunity to be an encouragement with the outworking of our salvation. Pursuing peace with all men. See, that's, that's a tough one. Well, see, that's loving people like Jesus loved people. See, we get tired of loving people because we think we're about to run out of our love. And so we keep forgiving or we keep stretching out. We're going to run out of whatever that is that we have. But when we consider him, we look unto Jesus, realize when it's grace, you can never run out of Jesus' love. But the Bible does say in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. 
I said, well, that, that's not even right. I mean, how are people going to learn not to mess with me if I don't, you know, after they turn the other cheek, come back with a roundhouse left? I've got to teach people, you know. You know, because doesn't the Bible say God takes care of those that take care of themselves? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Then it goes on to say, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Wow. That's a good one, isn't it? Because now we don't have responsibility for everybody to like you. No, you just follow Jesus. If they don't like you, that's, that's their problem. And if somebody, if you offend somebody and you ask for forgiveness, but they say, forget it, I'm not going to forgive you, now it's their problem. You've asked them, as far as depends upon you. You know, I like to tell the story, reading a biography of Jonathan Edwards, somebody came in fact, David Brainerd came to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage, and Jonathan Edwards loved David Brainerd too much, and he said, no, you can't marry her. He said, well, is she not a believer? And Jonathan Edwards said this, the grace of God can live with some that others cannot. I'm like, wow, that's a wise saying. <laughs> that's true, isn't it? There's some people the grace of God lives in, but wow, they're still kind of cantankerous, hard for other people to get along with. He, would let, he wasn't going to ruin David Brainerd's ministry by giving him his ornery daughter. But as far as depends upon you, you get along with all people. Then it says, never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Here's the bottom line. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's supernatural. That's supernatural. And I'll tell you what, some days you're probably going to have to be on your knees. God, give me grace. i got to forgive this person again, and I know they have a need, and now you've motivated me to give to that need. Lord, help me. That's what the disciples said. When they said, Lord, how many times we got to forgive? Seventy times seven. And the teacher, <laughs> and the disciples said, we need to pray. We better pray some more. Wow, who can do that? You see, it's supernatural. But that is the grace of God that lives within us if Jesus Christ is our Savior. And then secondly, he says, pursue holiness. Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The question is, what does your lifestyle, your attitudes, your testimony speak of to other people? We don't want to be a stumbling block out there in the workplace don't be worried about getting your ahead. You say, well, if I don't, you know, we see these politicians today, even the ones that claim to be Christians, throw on all kinds of jabs, right? Well, that's the way it's done in the political world. Why? Because they believe and they listen to their counselors that, you know, if somebody's throwing a punch, you've got to throw one back to show that you're hot, hard and you're tough, right? Because they don't believe the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Bible says promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west, but God puts one up and he puts another one down. That's a place of peace for a believer. You don't have to throw elbows to get ahead. You don't have to crawl up on somebody else and put them down to be ahead. See, God is looking out for you. He's taking care of you. And your testimony is speaking something out there to people. You may not even be paying attention, but your focus is on the Lord, but your life is leaving a path and other people are going to want to know. Even in the times of trial, 
1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always, especially in trial, to give an answer to every man that asks you about the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. And lastly, verses 15 through 17, we need to be an encouragement with the stewardship that each one of us have of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the stewardship of the gospel. He says, verse 15, see to it. Now, when I see those words, now, if my dad left in the morning, he said, Paul, the grass needs to be mowed. You see to it. That would not feel like an option to me. That feel like an option to you if the Holy Spirit's saying, now you see to it. Your dad tells you you got some chores today. You see to it. What does that mean? There's going to be accountability. You see to it. Who? The congregation. Everybody he's writing to. You see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Chuck Swindoll in his biography of Moses said that in every congregation there's a mixed multitude. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came out a mixed multitude. There were some Hebrews there, and there were some Egyptians that had been believers, and there were some Hebrews that were there that were not believers. It was a mixed multitude. In every church is a mixed multitude. We preach the gospel every week because we don't want to take for granted because you've happened to learn maybe some rules of Christianity and some lingo that you're saved and you may not be saved. And I'll tell you, one way to offend a weak believer or an unsaved person, is ask them about their salvation. Woo, man, you hit a nerve. Wait, you, you, what you, wait, wait. said, no, 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 I'm just concerned about you. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, the wise man teaches his mouth persuasive words. And it's important that we learn how to ask questions. But in counseling situations, we always start with a foundation of the gospel. Tell me about your salvation. You ask some people growing up in church, tell me your testimony, they go, what? My what? Now in this church, you don't have to be here very long and that's just a part of life, isn't it? You're coming to our group, we may know you're a Christian. And I'll say, hey, Mike, share your testimony with these guys. And a believer's like, well, let me tell you what Jesus did, right? That's not a hard thing, that, that's a fun thing. To tell about what Jesus did, how he, he, he reached you when you were lost, that's a good thing. To an unbeliever, they feel like you're questioning them. But we can't see a person's heart. The Bible says, the mind of man no, man, no man knows but God and that man. But we want to make sure, so we keep preaching the gospel. And when people start running into a rough patch, and I sit down with my friends, I say, what's going on, man? Are you sure about yourself? Let's start there. I'm not judging you. I just want to know, do you know Christ? Because if you haven't been forgiven, get this, this is a principle. If you haven't been forgiven, you do not have the capacity to forgive. So if you wonder why you can't forgive your spouse or your brother or your sister or for some passing, you can't forgive. It may be because you don't have the grace of forgiveness in your life from Jesus in the first place. See? You just can't forgive. You can't let it go. And you're like the fellow that the king forgave him the million, multi-million dollar debt. The king was going to throw him to prison, but he felt bad for the guy. He had a family, and so he forgave him. He was forgiven of the millions and millions of dollars of debt. And what's the first thing he did? He remembered that his buddy owed him 20 bucks, and he went out, took him by the throat, and said, you better pay me or I'm going to throw you into prison. And the king heard about it. 
He's a good, good guy. Going to throw him in prison. He's not going to get out until he pays every penny. That's what happens when we don't forgive. As believers, we just ha- we have to forgive because we're re- we realize I am guilty of the death of the Son of God. My sin nailed him there. Your sin nailed him there. And when I can't forgive my brother or sister, what does the Bible say? In the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray. If you don't forgive, God doesn't forgive you. But the opposite is true also. If you can't forgive, it may be you haven't ever received forgiveness for your sin. And we don't want anybody to fall short of the grace of God. I want to make sure everybody that hears the gospel comes to Christ. Can we make them come? No. Can we make them believe? No. Can we save them? No. But we can come along and love them and give them the truth and give them the gospel and make sure they understand it as simply as possible. See to it. God puts you on your heart that you're praying for those around you. There's someone that keep going back into sin, going back into sin. It looks like it's their habit. It looks like there's lifestyle. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, if you belong to God, you can't live that lifestyle. And so even though they come to church, you go, wow, Lord, open their heart. Lord, you show them because we can't. You can show up and wag your finger and give people the, the, the exact words of Scripture. But God has to open the heart. God is the one that grants repentance. First Timothy two, Second Timothy two twenty four, and the Bible says there that God's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Listen to this: If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. What does it start with? A gentle servant, though, doesn't it? it starts with a gentle servant that's there, that's caring. This is bringing the healing balm of the gospel to somebody. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Then he goes on and he says, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. In Deuteronomy 29, 18, Sam reminded me of this. This is, this is really powerful. And I believe the writer of Hebrews is looking back to this. So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when that bitter person, they've decided in their heart, they're still in the congregation, but they've decided, eh, that's not important. We're going to go serve other gods. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse, he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in my stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land and the dry. And that's what the Judaizers were. They came into the church, and they pretended like they were Christians for a while, but pretty soon, they weren't bearing that fruit. And they said, I don't need to do that. I don't have to obey the Lord. I don't have to get baptized. I'm baptized? I don't get baptized. I'm a Christian. I'm good. I don't have to obey the Lord in all the things. I've obeyed in the main things. I'll do what I want. That's, that's here. That's the root of bitterness. And it springs up pretty soon where they share that with people around them and, and they don't leave by themselves. What's the opposite? The heart says, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. Verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. He didn't care about his spiritual heritage. He didn't care about whether God blessed him or not. He was concerned about his 
desire to go hunting and get everything he could, get every can he can, can all he got, sit on the lid. He was just, all he cared about was his flesh. So he came in one time from hunting, and he was hungry. He was dying. See a little commercial with the kid comes in, reminds me of my son David. He says, I could eat a horse. All of a sudden, there's a horse standing there looking at him. Kid doesn't know what to do. He gives them whatever they're advertising to eat. Kids come in and think, I am starving to death, right? I'm starving. They're not really starving, are they? He came from hunting, and he was really hungry. I think God probably just allowed that to show Esau his heart, but he didn't get it. And Esau, he says, what are you, what are you cooking there? What's that red stuff you got cooking? Smells good. Now, Jacob was a man who lived in the tents. He stayed close to mama. And so he was probably a good chef, learned how to cook, and he was making some good stuff. And Esau said, hey, come on, give me some of that. I'm starving. He said, well, I'll give it to you if you sell me your birthright. Now, anybody that cared about God's blessing in life said, I'd rather starve than miss out on God's blessing. But he didn't. He just cared about having some soup. He cared about his flesh. Maybe that's what's keeping you from coming to Christ. You carry so much about your immorality and just what you have going on and what you're trying to accomplish in your life, you can't let go of it. That was Esau. He just couldn't let go of it. And so he said, sure, it doesn't mean anything to me. And then he got tricked out of the blessing, didn't he? He got tricked out of it by his brother. Now, Jacob went about it the wrong way, but Jacob had the right idea. You need God's blessing in your life. But I know that those things get a hold of our flesh, and all Esau cared about was his flesh. It's all he cared about. Feeding the appetites of the flesh that he just couldn't let go. And, and probably, if you're, if you're caught in that trap, you're thinking, well, I come to Christ, but I see how Christians live, and I just can't live that way. I gotta have, I gotta have my sin. You know, I just can't imagine what life would be without my whatever that is. And the Bible says here, last verse, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, at first glance, you might think, oh, I guess he just missed out. And even though he wanted to be saved, he couldn't be saved. No, no, no. There was no place of repentance in his heart. He was sorry that he missed out, but not sorry enough to repent. There was no place of repentance in his own life. He could not let go of his flesh. He could not let go of those fleshly desires. He couldn't see how turning to God would be better than the way he could bless himself. So he held on to it. There was no place in himself. You see, repentance is a blessing that comes from God. It's something God grants. It's grace. But if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it talks about Moses when he used to go up on the mountain, and he would come down and his face would be reflecting the glory of God and the people would be kind of afraid. So he put a veil over his face so the people could come up close and hear what Moses had to say from God. And Paul said, that veil still lays over the heart of those that are lost in sin in the Jewish community. But listen to this. When somebody turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. 
The Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. See, salvation is a gift of God. But it's available to anybody that will come. It's supernatural. We can't do it. You have to decide to follow Christ. And you tell God, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. He will grant you repentance. You can turn from your sin. But some of you won't turn because you're holding on to it. And you're playing Christian, but you say, honestly, between you and God, that sin's got a hold of you. And you won't let go of your pride. You won't let go of your fright. You won't let go. There's no place of repentance. You just can't see how God could do that. You won't trust God in it. The opportunity to share the gospel with people, it's not about our goodness. It's about his goodness, about his finished work on the cross. And you say, well, you know what? Um, Witnessing, that's just not my thing. You know, sharing the gospel with people. I see people hurting all, and they probably need the gospel, probably everybody in my office or on my team, whatever wherever you're working or spending your time in your school. They probably need the Lord, but you know, it's just not my thing. No, the Bible just said here, you see to it. You see to it. What does it start? By praying. God will lay somebody in your heart, you begin to pray for them, and then you look for opportunity to share. You say, well, that's not my theology, Pastor. Listen, I've dealt with this a long time, and every once in a while, you'll have a young person that just really loves doctrine, and that's a good thing. And especially young men, they want to have the right answer. So they got their, their doctrine all lined up and they've got it all figured out, right? And they've come to understand that God sends people to heaven and he sends people to hell. Now, that's not in the Bible. The Bible says he chooses every son, right? We see that. His sovereignty is involved in those that come to Christ. But it doesn't say he chooses people to go to hell. Now, that's a logical conclusion you can come to, but it's not in the Bible. How do you explain it? I can't. The Bible says, chosen before the foundation of the world, and it says, whosoever will may come. I don't know how you figured that out. That's the mind of God, and I don't have that mind. But let me, let me just think this with you. If that were true, there were certain people that are going to heaven and certain people going to hell, and there's nothing you can do about changing that, as a child of God, wouldn't you still want to be excited about what God is excited about? In our home, every time a baby's being born, in our church, whenever a baby's being born, we start anticipating that, don't we? Now, how could your wife take it, husbands, if you just said, well, I don't know what to be excited about. The baby's coming. They're going to stop it now, you know. No, we're excited about it. It's a new life. I remember working as a young dad, and we'd have a new baby at home, and I'd be working, and I wouldn't necessarily like my job, but I'd be working, I'd think, well, I'm taking care of my family. And then I'd have that thought, ooh, that's right, there's a new baby at home, there's a new person there. I get to go see, I want to go spend time with that person. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that every soul that comes to Christ is ex nihilo creation power. It says there, Just like when God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, is the same as when the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into a light. It's the same creative power. There is no hope for a soul apart from Jesus Christ. And then God reaches down 
and give somebody that thought to follow him. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, when I get to heaven, I want to see that video, however God does that in heaven. Don't you want to see it? And I'll bet that will be one of our favorites. God, show us again how you spoke light into darkness and then you how you formed the animal, spoke them out of the dust and out of the, the water and then how you took and formed clay and made Adam. And then you did that operation and took a rib from Adam and made Eve, the perfect woman. Show us that one again. You see, I get excited every time I hear that God's working in a heart and, and you've heard somebody come to Christ. We were just heard yesterday about an uncle over 90 years old that Rich had been praying for since he knew him. Been praying and praying and praying. He just came to Christ. And Rich's tears and excitement talking about everything, how it happened, just like we do when a baby's born. See, that, that's something that every believer ought to be excited about because not only has this saved us, but he's called us into the kingdom business of how he's building the kingdom of those he's calling so what he says, see to it, yeah, it's, a, it's instruction, it's a command, but it's also the great blessing of being a part of what God is doing. God, we thank you that you've given us a life. You've given us eternal life, but with that eternal life came your desires, your giftedness, that we can live a life that's pleasing to you, Lord. That is so amazing. Lord, stir us up to obedience. Stir us up to compassion to those other believers that are hurting around us and, and we see our opportunity to come alongside. Stir us up to lost people that we would be diligent to share what we found in Christ, the good news, the love of God. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.